Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back to the Corbett Report podcast. I'm your host, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, although you probably didn't need to be told that. Today is the 15th of May, 2013, and I'd like to welcome you back to the Corbett Report podcast, where we are starting off with an edition of the Questions for Corbett subsection of that podcast series, where exactly as you would expect from a title like that, we go through some of your questions uh, and attempt to answer them. So uh, once again, let me preface this uh, Questions for Corbett podcast by saying thank you, sincerely thank you for all the correspondence that you guys send in through the contact form at CorbettReport.com. Once again, there is too much for me to physically respond to at all, but I do try to read everything that comes in. I do appreciate all the questions, comments, information, feedback, tips, all of the feedback that you give through that contact form is greatly appreciated. So once again, please don't take it personally if I don't uh, respond to you to your personal email. It's just there's too much that comes in for me to physically respond to everyone. Also, for this Questions for Corbett uh, podcast series, you can get your questions in via the contact form at CorbettReport.com. You can also tweet me at CorbettReport, or you can leave your question in the comments section for this YouTube video. And uh, I will also leave the video response option open so that you'll be able to uh, post a video response and you can post a question that way. And I'd be happy to play the video and answer your question in the next Questions for Corbett if you choose to do it that way. But for right now, we have half an hour to try to get through as many of your questions as we can. So let's roll up our sleeves and get to work. And we'll start by opening up the mailbag for a question from Mark, who writes, Lots of people who are not a big fan of big banks tend to recommend credit unions and local banks over megabanks. And I tend to agree with them. But I also hear negative stories about credit unions. Do you agree that some credit unions are as badly managed as megabanks? How can people choose a good financial institution if such a thing exists? Well, thank you for the question, Mark. It's a good question. It's a valid question. And I guess the simple answer is, do I think that some credit unions are as badly managed as big megabanks? Well, yes. Although I'm not sure I'd use badly managed or mismanagement uh, to describe the big mega banks, especially the big six in the United States, which are, of course, absolutely the tools of the, the mega superclass, the elite, whatever you want to call them, whatever they want to call themselves, more like it. Uh, I don't think that's mismanagement. I think that they have very carefully managed the uh, the economic crisis that we've arrived at in the hopes of ensconcing us even further into their global banking matrix that they're setting up behind the scenes through the Bank for Inter- Bank of International Settlements, etc. But, uh, but uh, on the note of whether small credit unions and small local banks can be poorly managed and or corrupt and or uh, non-transparent and or prone to going bankrupt? Absolutely. Yes, they can. So once again, there's really no substitute for due diligence when it comes to choosing a financial institution to handle your money if that's what you choose to do with your money. Unfortunately, most of us in this present day economy do need some sort of financial institution to at least handle our payroll, etc. So... So again, uh, it is an important decision that each of us has to make. And unfortunately, I don't have a one-size-fits-all solution for that. The only things that I could recommend are the types of common sense tips that I think everyone probably knows already, which is simply the more transparent that an institution is, the more likely that you're able to actually talk to an actual human being about your questions and concerns about that institution, the more you can find out about its history, uh, the more you can find out from other people who are belong to that institution, whether it's responsive to their needs, whether there's been problems in the past. 
the better off you'll be in the long run putting some of your faith in that system. But I think just like any other type of uh, place where you'd put your money, I think one of the keys is diversification. So you might not want to put all of your eggs into one small local credit union or one small bank. You might want to have a couple or a few different institutions where you spread your money around a little bit, which might help a little bit alleviate some of the concerns about bankruptcy, etc. But again, as we know uh, from the Cyprus example in recent times and uh, the the ominous wording in the Canadian uh, budget from 2013, uh, there is the possibility of bank runs and bankruptcy and bank account confiscation and all sorts of crazy financial things that can happen in this new financial world order that's uh, been ushered in in the last few years. So once again, there's no uh, there's no substitute for due diligence. All I can say is look in your local area, look around, ask other people, uh, attempt to uh, to find out as much as you can about the institution. Try to talk to people at the bank about your concerns and uh, and just let your gut guide you on that to a certain extent. Unfortunately, there's nothing I can give in terms of specific advice. I hope that suffices for now. Let's turn to our next question. This one from YouTube via Freaky Scary Channel, who writes. Is fluoride added to the water or salt in Japan? All right, that's a very good question. And the simple answer is no. No, it is not. And uh, if you want a little bit more elaboration on that answer, I will throw in in the show notes for this episode a link to fluoridation.com, which has a letter up from the uh, government of Japan's environment agency, and specifically the former head of that agency, Toru Nagayama, who wrote a letter to Mr. Eugene Albright back in uh, 2000. I guess Mr. Eugene Albright had written, um, was doing some research about fluoridation in various countries, so the uh, Environment Agency of the Government of Japan took the time to write him to assure him that no, uh, there is no application of fluoridation in Japan. And in fact, it goes on to say in this letter, which again, I'll link up in the show notes, quote, Japanese government and local water suppliers have considered there is no need to supply fluoridated water to all users because one, impacts of fluoridated water on human health depends on each human being so that inappropriate application may cause health problems of vulnerable people. And two, there are other ways for the purpose of dental health care, such as direct fluoride coating on teeth and using fluoridated dental paste. And these ways should be applied at one's free will, end quote. Wow, imagine that, an environmental agency of a government actually admitting that people have free will and that they should be able to choose what medications they take in into their bodies or what they don't put uh, in their bodies, and saying that the individual uh, effects of some sort of mass medication like fluoridation is something that obviously can't be fine-tuned to individuals, so it should not be applied to everyone. So long story short, there are many, many countries around the world that do not use fluoridation in their water supply, and um, America is still something of an outlier there. So for my American brethren, please don't uh, believe that the world is all uh, under this fluoridation uh, regime that you guys are. Uh, In fact, there's many, many countries that are not, and it is not the norm. And so don't listen to the proponents of fluoridation in the United States who think that the idea of not fluoridating the water is just horrific. In fact, there are many countries on this planet and many even major governments that uh, argue against the practice of fluoridation, including here in Japan. So once again, thank you for that question, Freaky Scary Channel. And let's move along to the next email, this one in from Campbell. And Campbell writes, Do you know where we can find real-time or up-to-date radiation maps of the Pacific slash air currents? All right, Campbell, thank you for the question. So for those of you who are listening to the audio of this podcast, you might want to switch over to the video for a minute as we are here on the uh, on my desktop looking at fukushimaupdate.com 
which is, of course, what I would humbly recommend for people to go to to keep in keep up to date with what's happening at Fukushima and the radiation um, that's taking place there. So on FukushimaUpdate.com, for those who aren't familiar with it, if you look on the right-hand side, there's a column with the tags um, that the various entries are tagged with. And if you go to Radiation Dispersion Map, you can find all of the entries that have been tagged with that um, moniker. So here we have, for example, an attempt to estimate early-stage radiation exposure dose at the location of every household in Itate, etc., etc. Again, everything that has to do with radiation dispersion maps is here. Let's click at the bottom of that first page on Volunteer Group Creating Radiation radiation reading database which is an article from last june which uh, talks about something called safecast.org which uh, set up a uh, basically a, a user crowdsourced um, uh, radiation mapping uh, system where basically they collect geiger readings from thousands of people and uh, in fact over four million people and and collate them into an interactive map in fact they have different types of maps they have fusion map interpolation map uh, aggregate feeds map etc etc let's just click on the safecast map which again collates that geiger counter data it'll take a moment to load and in fact i have to uh allow it on my uh, no script because I use no script on my Firefox browser something that I would recommend people look into if they don't already and uh, here we are so it's got for example the latest radiation readings uh, from around Fukushima where of course you can see much higher readings of radiation and then sort of tapering off from uh, areas further away and uh, this map uh, not only covers Japan with uh, most of the area covered with independent monitoring but also, if you zoom out and out and out and out, it uh, will show, for example, Taiwan or Korea or various other places, and even America, where um, it'll take a moment for the data to load. Again, it's just thinking about it at the moment. But when the data loads, in fact, you can see that there are areas in the United States around uh, nuclear testing and nuclear uh, plant facilities that are, in fact, higher than some of the areas in Japan. So again, just goes to show that the perceptions of nuclear danger are sometimes quite different than the realities. So again, I would recommend that people take a look at this information as just one starting point. Again, there's lots of other ways, but uh, that's one place where hopefully you can begin to find some information about radiation readings and uh, how to keep track of them. All right, Campbell, thank you again for that question. And let's move on to the next question. This time, let's dip into the mailbag from a question from Dan, who writes, I just have a question for you regarding the Bin Laden raid that happened on May 1st, 2011. If it was a hoax, then how come Al-Qaeda got a new leader to replace Bin Laden? End quote. All right, thank you for that email, Dan. I'm going to assume that you're a relatively new listener or viewer to the Corbett Report, and if that is the case, then I certainly hope that you'll take a look into some of my previous work on the Bin Laden raid hoax and Bin Laden himself in general, which I hope will answer some of the, uh, the confusion that might uh, arise here, especially through this use of the word hoax, which is becoming more and more common. It's more and more in use uh, through uh, the various staged and manipulated events that have occurred recently. The word hoax is being bandied around quite a bit, and it's taking on this connotation that if something is a hoax, then it must mean it must mean that it never happened at all, or something along those lines. And I would like to caution people about how to interpret this word, especially in the context of something like the Bin Laden raid that supposedly happened in Abbottabad on May 1st, 2011. Um, this is, uh, uh, the, the way that this is portrayed in the corporate media, for example, and in the mainstream media, is that uh, the people who believe that this was a hoax actually believe that Bin Laden is still alive. And that's bizarre to me because I haven't met 
anyone or heard anyone or seen anyone in the alternative media that has ever put forward the idea that bin Laden is still alive. Uh, As far as I know, I don't know anyone who actually holds that particular view. Uh, By far and away, the, the, the only interpretation that I've ever heard from an alternative perspective is that bin Laden likely died a long time ago and has been dead for many years and uh, basically it was his computer animated corpse that was delivering those ridiculous video missives that were coming out on an occasional basis before he was finally written out of the script and that's basically what I've been saying since literally day one and I will put in the links to again my appearance on RT the day of the raid itself where I questioned whether or not Bin Laden had been dead for years and uh, uh, basing that on some of the numerous pronouncements that had been made in the past in fact, nine that I counted that Bin Laden was already dead before May 1st, 2011. I'll put in my link to that article outlining the nine times that Bin Laden had been pronounced dead. I'll put in a link to the last word on Osama Bin Laden talking about uh, his background and what when he probably actually did die, uh, probably shortly after the uh, the events of 9-11 themselves. Uh, uh, once again, this relates back to his kidney condition. He was on dialysis on September 10th, 2011, uh, 2001 in Rawalpindi in a military hospital. Uh, this was confirmed again by CBS News, the, so I'll put in a link to that report uh, in case you haven't seen it. Um, basically giving uh, uh, the idea that he was on dialysis in his cave fortress in Tora Bora. I mean, uh, somehow managing to survive for 10 years uh, like that is just ridiculous. The fact that he was in a military hospital on literally the day of uh, September 11th under the watchful eye of the Pakistani ISI, nothing more than an adjunct of the American CIA, is just ridiculous. Flat, flat out patently ridiculous. So there are all sorts of things to question about the Bin Laden raid and what really happened. And I don't claim to know what actually happened in Abbottabad that day, but I am extremely skeptical that Bin Laden was killed uh, in that raid. I think he was probably long dead. So whatever or whoever was disposed of in that raid, I doubt it was Osama Bin Laden. And I will continue to reserve my uh, judgment on that until such time as some sort of proof is actually given for the proposition that Bin Laden was killed. Literally, this has as much credence and credibility with me if, as if the President of the United States came out and said, we found Bigfoot in, in, the, the, uh, in the Rocky Mountains and we killed him and threw his body into the sea- ocean before anyone had a chance to take a picture. Just believe us on this. I wouldn't believe that type of pronouncement and I won't believe this Bin Laden pronouncement until a single shred of evidence is produced for it. And I don't mean anonymous uh, members of uh, SEAL Team 6 that leak uh, story after story after story to the media about how Bin Laden was killed, each one slightly different than the one before. That That's not exactly proof for of anything except for the fact that they can't even get their own story straight. So lots and lots of background information to go with that. Suffice it to say that that the May 1st, 2011 raid was a hoax, I think is true, but that that means that bin Laden didn't actually die or something along those lines is a misinterpretation of that. And why did Al-Qaeda appoint their new leader in the wake of uh, bin Laden's being written out of the script? Well, again, I think this goes back to the fundamental issue of what Al-Qaeda is, which is really more of a media creation than something that exists in reality, an actual operative uh, reality on the ground. And uh, we've been over this before. For example, Jason Burke in The Power of Nightmares outlining how Al-Qaeda was really nothing more than a creation in a New York courtroom designed to basically prosecute uh, bin Laden uh, under RICO law. 
cause. And uh, again, there's all sorts of information about this. So the fact that Al-Qaeda appointed their new leader, I take with uh, with a hefty grain of salt, let's say, um, in terms of what that actually means, especially because who is the new leader? Oh, Ayman al-Zawahiri, bin Laden's right-hand man. And who is Ayman al-Zawahiri? Well, I'm glad you asked that because I recently did a podcast episode on that very question. So I will point you to that where you can find, of course, our recent interview with FBI whistleblower Sibel Edmonds talking about how the FBI documents that she, and uh, translation documents that she was handling in the FBI Washington field office proved beyond a shadow of a doubt that high-level American officials were meeting and working with uh, Osama bin Laden's right-hand man, Ayman al-Zawahiri, throughout the 1990s, meeting with him in Azerbaijan and other areas. So, uh, so again, absolutely 100% uh, someone who is controlled and puppeteered by the Western intelligence establishment anyway, suddenly is now the new leader of Al-Qaeda, blah, blah, blah. Uh, it's all a dog and pony show. So once again, I will put copious links in the show notes for this episode. If you're on CorbettReport.com, it'll be right here with this podcast episode. If you're on YouTube, just look a little bit below the video and uh, where it says show more, there should be a link to the show notes. Just click on that and you can find all of the documents that we're talking about here, all the videos and reports that I've done in the past on this subject. So Dan, thank you for getting in touch and I hope you will start exploring the CorbettReport.com archives on this subject. Uh, let's move on to Gregory, who writes, uh, just curious as to how much of a pass you are willing to give people who won't speak 9-11 truth, or at least publicly question the official 9-11 narrative. Do you believe that it's acceptable to promote and praise the work of people who won't at least call for a new investigation? Examples, Amy Goodman, Jeremy Scahill, Noam Chomsky, Ron Paul. Okay, thank you for this question, uh, Gregory. It's an important question, um, but I'm going to have to disagree with the fundamental underlying precepts of this question and the way that it's phrased. Um, there's a few things in here that I, I find somewhat objectionable. First of all, the idea, do I find it acceptable to promote and praise the work of people like blah, blah, blah? Uh, well, first of all, who, who should care in the audience right now? Who should care what I find acceptable to promote or praise? That's obviously a decision that you guys have to make for yourself. But if you want to know my opinion on this, um, basically, I would say that it's uh, it, it, it this question comes from completely the wrong perspective. It comes from the perspective of people who are still looking for leaders to follow, people to simply trust, put your faith in. And if we can find just that those people who talk about everything that we want to talk about and believe everything that we believe and are 100% in line with, with ourselves, then we can simply put our faith in them. We can promote and praise their work and we can uh, we can basically become followers of them. That is 100% anathema to what I believe and to what I hold true here at the Corbett Report. I certainly don't ask for that type of admiration or adoration from anyone. I don't expect it, um, and I never would, and I don't put my faith in anyone out there, whether that be a Chomsky or a Goodman or a Scahill or anyone uh, for that matter. And I think it's it's somewhat uh, just naive to think that that's uh, that that that's really the way to come to truth and understanding is to simply find the person who's 100% right about everything. I don't think that's ever going to happen, and I don't think that's what I'm looking for. So really, my philosophy is that if there is someone out there like a Jeremy Scahill who has done 
excellent work talking about uh, Blackwater or talking about the rendition and torture, or people like Matt Tybee, who's done excellent work popularizing knowledge about Goldman Sachs and its manipulation of the uh, the banking uh, institutions, etc. Uh, that's great. Use that work as a resource that it is, and and absolutely, if it if you find that, uh, for example, Tybee's articles are are helpful to talk about Goldman Sachs, then absolutely you should use that when talking to other people and getting them to t- take a look at that information, especially if you verify the information and you know that to be true. Who cares if Tybee denies 9/11 or believes the 9/11 official conspiracy theory? Uh, at, at the end of the day, uh, I'm not going to be turning to Matt Tybee for information about. 9/11. I'm not going to be turning to uh, to Amy Goodman for, for to to try to expose you know what happened on 9/11 or something like that. I'm going to use the individual works of these people that that have value and that have merit and that I've uh, verified for myself. And that's all we can ever ask. So I don't put my 100% faith in anyone. I don't think other people should put their 100% faith in anyone. I don't think we should be applying some sort of special test and only if someone says the right words and clicks their heels together three times should we even begin to look at their work. I think that's, again, a completely naive way of looking at it and it's throwing the baby out with the bathwater. And uh, it's a complete waste, I think. Um, certainly, if and you can look at my archives, if you look through the interviews uh, that I've done in the past, I've certainly talked to people who who don't believe uh, that big pharma is a problem or are happy to take their flu vaccines or who don't uh, want to talk about 9-11 truth or who believe in the uh, man-made global warming uh, alarmism, uh, etc., etc. But uh, again, I'm more interested in what people say on specific issues and promoting specific work in specific ways. And it's about the information. It's not about the people. So we have to break out of the mindset of making it about the people and looking for leaders to follow. Uh, There's probably a lot more to say on this topic, but I'll stop while I'm ahead. So why don't we move on to the next comment? This one comes in via YouTube, via the uh, user Stormbringer, who writes, Hi, James. Wondering if you know about opt-in. I'd like to know your thoughts. Uh, Thank you for the question, uh, Stormbringer. And this is one that I've received from a number of people over the preceding uh, several months since the one people's public trust uh, really broke into public consciousness. So uh, for people who don't know about opt-in, it is uh, something that you could find more information out about at optin.com, or at least it used to be there. Apparently, just in the last 24 hours or so, they've changed over to something called i-uv.com. So I don't really know, but just going from that website, which seems to be the official place for all things re- regarding the One People's Public Trust, you can read about the what this is, and uh, just reading a small section of this, it says, quote, Using a series of legal actions and uniform commercial code registrations, the trustees of the One People's Public Trust serve notices on the banks and corporate governments stating all unlawful and illegal claims of ownership and actions of management and control by their principals, agents, and beneficiaries were lawfully and legally duly cancelled and foreclosed upon by their own free will choice not to remedy the damage they had caused, end quote. Again, you can go and read through this, and you can go and read the uh, the UCC filings, etc., that have been used in this case, and supposedly the, the takeaway from this is that because of some uniform commercial code filing that took place last year, now everyone is free, corporations have been disbanded, government uh, uh, tyranny has been ended once and for all, and we are now free human beings. Um, and if you te- detect a note of, um, shall we say, uh, sarcasm in my voice there, well, yes, it's because I think that this is 
a complete load of baloney um, because it is one of the most fundamental and persuasive and in uh, just really dangerous lies because this lie is that somehow because of a UCC filing in a courtroom halfway around the world via people that I've never met and probably never will in my life, I am now a free human being. We have now been freed from the shackles of corporate government tyranny. That is an an insidious lie because it gets us to buy into the system. My freedom does not come from a courtroom. It does not come from a UCC filing. It has nothing whatsoever to do with that. My freedom comes from my inalienable human rights that are endowed by the very fact that I'm a human being and have been born into this world. They have nothing to do with the courtroom, and I have nothing to do with anyone that's trying to tell me that or to try to uh, to make some sort of legal wrangling about this. It's not legal. It's truly 100% about my my uh, absolutely inalienable human rights and uh, and again it has nothing to do with a courtroom and uh, i for one have nothing to do with opt in and don't want anything to do with such a system if there are people out there that need to be told that some courtroom filing has made them free and that in their mind suddenly makes them understand that they are free human beings then good for them i don't begrudge them that if that's what they need then I hope that works out for them. But for myself, I don't need anyone to come along with a courtroom filing to try to tell me that I'm a free human being. Uh, Let's move on to another question. This one from Justin. He writes, I've been watching your podcasts over the last few weeks, and I really like your interviews and content. Can you recommend more independent news outlets, outlets and columnists not associated with mainstream media? Okay, thank you for the question, Justin, and I appreciate the question. I uh, I don't want to overthink things or over uh, overdo it, so why don't we just keep it simple? Um, here we are on CorbettReport.com, and of course at the top you have the various tabs that you can click through. If you just click on the links button, it will take you to the links where I have not only listed um, my own sites, but also sites of other institutions that I'm affiliated with and or want to uh, to promote. So for example, under recommended news and information sites, of course we have Boiling Frogs Post com globalresearch.ca, mediamonarchy.com, activist post, zero hedge, press for truth. Those are just some examples of uh, some news sites that I would recommend that people check out. And uh, and uh, I suppose more so than that, uh, if people are still interested in other places that they can go for interesting information, one thing that I would um, encourage people to do is, for example, on my New World Next Week episodes with uh, James Evan Pilato, you might want to actually click through to the sources of some of the stories that we use. And if you do that on a consistent basis week after week, you'll start to notice some of the blogs and, and places that we go um, to source some of our information, especially the places that we tend to turn to um, you know, several times or that we've sourced many times in the past, talking about things like blacklistednews.com, stratrisks.com, um, Land Destroyer Report, other blogs like that that we frequently cite. Um, chances are, if we tend to cite it week after week, um, it's probably a good place to go for information. But again, and of course, that also applies not only to New World Next Week, but all the uh, show notes in all the podcasts and videos that I do. Just click through to the sources and start checking out some of those websites. It's something that I would recommend, and I hope that that, at the very least, gets you started along looking for other uh, sources of alternative media information out there. Well, Justin, thank you for that email, but we are now running out of time, so let's see if we can just squeeze in a couple more questions. And the first one up is from Kathy, who writes, Please tell us how proficient you are in the Japanese language. I think you said you can't really read the newspapers very well. How's your spoken Japanese? Are you fluent? And if so, how long did that take? Does your wife speak English? Kathy-san, meiru okutekurete arigatou gozaimasu. Kotoshi wa 
日本に来て9年目ですからやっぱり日常会話大体できるけど難しい言葉は例えばあのよ政治の用語とかあの哲学の用語とか本当に難しいですからそういう会話あんまりできませんねあの漢字の読み方も難しいから新聞はあんまり読めませんあの奥さんの方があの 2, 2年間ぐらいカナダに住んでいましたから英語上手ですだからあの家でちょっと変な日本語と英語のミックスいますあのだからあのやっぱり大体言いますけどあの難しい言葉言いませんねそうこれからよろしくお願いします And let's move along to Chip Chip writes The birth of your child will change you What kind of world will you want that child to grow up to? I fear for my grandchildren oh so much Well thank you for that Chip and、uh, let me say absolutely 100% I can already say you are totally correct The birth of my child has changed me in numerous ways or at the very least has changed my perspective And even though I was mentally prepared for this, the birth of my son, and, and, and have been ready for it for a while, it still hits you like a ton of bricks when it actually happens and you start to really contemplate what, what it all means and how it all fits into the, the bigger, bigger picture. So I'm going to have a lot more to say on this.、Uh, let me first start out by saying a wholehearted,、uh, really heartfelt thank you to all those people who. Took the time to write in your congratulations. And、uh, I, again, hundreds and hundreds of messages came in from all around the world. And I really wish that I could respond to each of you individually to thank you for that. It really did mean a lot to myself and my wife, and I'm sure will to my son one day when he's able to comprehend that. So, so haunt,、uh, honestly, thank you so much for all of that input and that congratulations. That was really touching. And,、uh, and I've also had a lot of questions and comments in from people who are wondering if I'm going to be sharing pictures or details about my son, his name, etc. And、uh, as I explained in this week's、uh, subscriber only video to my newsletter subscribers, I,、uh, I'm going to try to walk the walk when it comes to what I talk about here on the Corbett Report, when it comes to putting our、uh, information into the social media Big Brother Panopticon surveillance grid、um, from the moment that we're born. I'm going to attempt to not do that with my son. So I'm,、uh, I'm not going to be sharing、uh, pictures and videos and, and the names and details of, of my son. Um, uh, I've chosen to put my name and my face out there in the public as part of what I do in terms of trying to fight this Big Brother、um, Panopticon Surveillance Society, and I've chosen to make that, I've made the conscious decision to do that. But、uh, my wife hasn't made that decision, and my son certainly hasn't made that decision, and until and unless he does, I'm certainly not going to do that for him. So I hope you guys can respect my privacy on, in that regard. But、uh, on the nature of The world that I hope that my son will be growing up into. Obviously, I would really love for a world of, of true freedom and where people interact peacefully and non violently in、uh, ways of in voluntary ways that come together of their own free will and accord to uh, enter into uh, relations with each other with it, free from fraud or coercion. And I'd love that type of society to be the norm in the future rather than the society that we have that's governed by a few、uh, psychopaths at the very top. But I'm, I'm skeptical about our ability to attain that utopia anytime in the near future. And、uh, again, I hope that it is possible, and I do 
I do work in that knowledge that it is possible and that we can transform society at the very least for the better, if not for the perfect. And that with each generation, we have the ability to raise our children peacefully, to understand the meaning of truth and freedom and why it's important to fight for those things. And that's exactly what I see my responsibility as a parent uh, to, to be doing. So again, I think that uh, I, I'm not necessarily utopian. I don't think that the, uh, my son is going to grow up in a utopia. And, uh, and that's not necessarily what, uh, what we have to aim for. But I think we do have to have the understanding and the knowledge that we can make a better world and that we are history's actors and we do shape the world that we live in by the ideas that we exhibit, that we manifest, that we employ in our day-to-day -day life. That really does have an effect on the world and we really have to take that to heart. So that's something I want to instill in my child. But as you say about your grandchildren and the fears that you have for them and the world they're going to grow up in, of course I have those fears for my son and the world that he's going to grow up in as we see this erosion of, of privacy, for, for example, the, the understanding of what privacy is and why it's important is being subtly eroded and uh, just generation by generation it's being chipped away at until it becomes the norm for everyone to be on Facebook and putting the intimate details of their personal life up online for complete strangers to gawk at, etc., etc. So not only that, but all the various different ways in which we're being inculcated into this uh, well collectivized Borg mentality that unfortunately makes for more pliable servants in the corporate fascist police state surveillance grid system that we're all being steeped in. So I think ultimately my biggest fear is that we are losing what it means to, to be humans, to understand our humanity, and to struggle and fight against those that would oppress or suppress that humanity. And, uh, and I really do fear about the technological advances um, that might make that a permanent revolution, as people like Aldous Huxley said in the past. Again, I'm doing what I can to try to counter that um, mentality and that philosophy that I think is at the root of what we're facing today. And I hope uh, you guys out there are with me on that. But as I say, uh, as you say, there's there's so much to talk about. It will transform my life. It already has transformed my life to become a parent. So that's obviously something that's going to be reflected more and more in the work that I do in the coming weeks and months and years is starting this Friday when I hope to return with a new edition of my of the regular podcast and we'll be talking more on these lines of what uh, what type of world uh, we can or should be creating for our children, etc. So uh, we'll be addressing that shortly here on The Corbett Report. Once again, thank you all out there for tuning in. I do appreciate your support, and I, of course, appreciate your feedback. I'm looking forward to more questions for the next edition of Questions for Corbett. Until then, thank you all for listening. Talk to you later.